Good morning. I will be reading um, the genealogy of Jesus Christ as recorded in Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Isaiah and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliziar, and Eliziar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. She told me I can't say anything about how hard that was. (laughs) Um, Before we begin, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, um, use your servant today to convey your message. This is all about you. Father, may our hearts be open to hear your word, and may our lives be changed. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Who's still awake after that? (laughs) I know, you probably didn't expect to come to church and just hear a bunch of names. Um, believe me, it sounded great, like a great sermon when I first thought of it, but then as I was researching and preparing for this, I was like, what did I get myself into? Um, but I could honestly tell that some of you are concerned about and wondering, I can't believe he is preaching on this. But in all reality, I've been a Christian now for 14 years and attending church regularly, and I listen to a lot of sermons while I drive around for work and in my studies. And I can honestly tell you that I have heard only one sermon on this genealogy, or, gene, or genealogy in general. Um, maybe I haven't listened to 
a lot, but I feel like it's a neglected part of scripture, um, genealogies, and they intimidate us, you know? Maybe it is that intimidating factor, um, or maybe it's a fact as a culture we have lost interest in knowing where we come from, um, you know? And, and especially during ad, Advent season, we avoid this genealogy. Um, but you see, the genealogy is important, okay, and family trees are important because ultimately they're about where we come from and they answer a question of who we are, okay? And nowadays, if you look around at our culture, um, it it's really isn't about where you, where you came from or what your family looks like. It's what your education was, what your success was, how much money do you have, you know? It's, that, that's the stuff that matters and defines you. But um, that's not clearly how we see Scripture. So as we, as we dig into the Scriptures, I want to go over <clears throat> a, a brief understanding of why Matthew starts this way. Now, um, Matthew was a Jew, Okay, he was a Jewish disciple of Jesus. The Jewish people were known to be amazing record keepers of family trees. All you have to do is read the Old Testament. You will clearly see a lot of lists like this. The question, though, is why does Matthew start his gospel account with a genealogy? Mark starts his off immediately with Jesus' baptism. John starts off with a deep and profound, um, the word became flesh. Luke starts off with just Jesus being born and onward. But you can see that Matthew starts with a genealogy. But I, and I think Matthew wants us to fully understand why Jesus was born. So if you have your Bibles open, you can see that the genealogy is broken up into three sections. 14, 14, 14, okay? The, the first section is about Abraham, that Jesus, Jesus is the promise fulfilled in Abraham. Second being David, and the third being the exile. You might be thinking... Well, this can't be all of Jesus' ancestors. And you are right. Matthew is selective and cunning in picking the names and events. See, to, Matthew was first writing to his audience. This was first given to the Jewish people during his time, not to us. We're, we're reading what they read. So to, to Matthew's target audience, the Jewish people, they would have known that this was correct even though it's not the full exhaustive list. So it's not the full exhaustive list we have here, but it's enough and it's important enough that they would have known and they wouldn't have questioned it. Because they, if they wanted to, they could have gone back and filled it in all the missing people. But Matthew was showing to his fellow Jew that Jesus was the promise that was given to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 
God promises Abraham that he will bless all the nations. Jesus was the king promised in section 2. And if you look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can read that David is reassured that after him, from his line, a king will come whose kingdom will endure forever. So Jesus is the promised king. Then you have the exile into Babylon. And God warned his people, if you look in Deuteronomy 28, this is the obedience and the disobedience section. And what would happen for their disobedience? Well, in the Old Testament, um, we see that God just says, this is what's going to happen to you if you do this and you forget my ways, and all of it happens. They get sent to exile, and as Matthew was writing this, the Jews are still technically in exile. They're still under the Roman Empire, and this is like big news, okay? So, Matthew is showing us that we cannot understand the birth of Jesus if we unhitch the Old Testament. So don't miss that. We can't, Matthew is taking us back to be able to understand the birth of Jesus. And you can't do that if you unhitch the Old Testament. So if anybody tells you that, oh, I just read the New Testament or I just follow Jesus and I don't believe in anything of the Old Testament, they don't understand Jesus. It's, it's not the Jesus of the Bible, okay? You have to read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation to understand Jesus. Because you see, every story, every event in the Old Testament is either pointing or leading to this marvelous moment. Jesus' birth. It's all about Jesus. All of it. So, again, we cannot fully understand Jesus' birth unless we take into account all of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, you will encounter all kinds of people leading up to Jesus' birth. And if you look at the names mentioned in this genealogy, you'll notice that these people are not ideal people leading to our Savior's birth. These are broken sinful, and messy people. Okay? Do you you get that? These aren't the perfect people that is leading to the glorious birth of the, the one and only true perfect person, which is Jesus. These are broken, messy, sinful people. And I want us to realize that this is the point of this genealogy as we, as we continue forward, and that is Jesus came to redeem messy people. Again, Jesus came to redeem messy people. You see, to the Jewish person, genealogy was precious. And it would invoke a reminder of God's faithfulness and sovereignty. They would look back on their genealogy and would see how God has worked 
and is working and how He has kept His promise. That's why you see so much of it in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And they would reflect on all the people and their stories and how God used them. Again, I mean, they, they would rely on these genealogies um, to be able to point to the stories of the Bible and, and see how God was working in their lives. They didn't have the written form that we do. They had oral tradition of passing stories, so their genealogy was really important to them. And this was one way of them to remember what was happening. I mean, they would look back on Abraham. They would look back on Judah, David, Uzziah, okay, Hezekiah, Josiah. These were some of the great names that were mentioned in that genealogy. But, I don't know if you caught it, what makes this genealogy even more special is that there's five women mentioned. Now, as I've said before, this is a culture shock, okay? Maybe not to us in the Western culture, but in the Middle Eastern culture, especially in the Jewish culture, this would have been a shock to have women included in a genealogy. Because Jewish genealogy only included the names of men. And men were the ones that carried on the family name. They, they were heirs to the inheritance, and if you didn't have a male heir, the inheritance was lost and your line wouldn't continue. This was really important. The, um, there's even, theologians will say and, and that there's proof that the Jewish men back then will wake up thanking God that they were born a male. Um, so that they were just able to carry on the tradition and carry on their family's legacy. So the culture is a male-dominated culture. And people remembered you and respected you based off of who your dad was. Now, this might be hard for us to understand in the West, okay? But for me personally, this is true. And for my culture. Um, see, you see, I moved to America in 2000, okay? I went back in 2003. I haven't been back and seen people in 20 years. But people will, will call my parents or people ask about me because of who my dad is. They, they respect me and they bestow honor on me because it, it's because of my dad. It's whose son I am and the honor that my dad has um, is, is, is um, bestowed upon me because I'm the oldest son and I carry that line. And in fact, my dad pressures me often and says um, to, to continue that. He wants me to um, continue these relationships and not to bring any shame and, and so on. Um, and in fact, when I, whenever I go places um, to a family meeting with other Kurdish people, how I'm introduced or who's introducing me, it goes, it, this is, you know, Siobhan, 
so-and-so, the son of, that, that, that just follows. It's everywhere. Like, it's like they don't know you, but as soon as you say the father, their demeanor changes and the, the respect comes out. So it, it shows. Um, but I got to tell you a little funny story, okay? So obviously we live in America, and my parents are used to this way of introduction and this way of life. So growing, growing up in high school and playing sports, um, I would have friends that would come over. Now, my parents haven't met their parents. So my parents don't know who, who their parents are, but they're used to the habit of how they introduce people. So it's funny, my parents would just start, and, and now, granted, okay, this was spoken in my culture, so the person wouldn't know what they were saying, thankfully. But my parents would start labeling things as a way of filling the blank and so that their habits are filled. So for example, I have one friend on the soccer team who broke his nose. And so my parents, every time they would see him, they would say, oh, this is Mark, the broken nose one. <laughs> and it was, it's, it was like that for every person. You know, They would be like, oh, this is so-and-so, the tall one. Oh, this is so-and-so the one with the beard or, but later on when my parents did meet their parents and how that interaction went, that was replaced. So, my, so it became Mark, oh, the one with the great dad or the honorable dad, you know? Um, so I, I thought that was funny, um, but in, in all seriousness though, Matthew's intention for including the five women, um, aren't what you also what the Jews would have also expected. They might have been like, okay, fine, Matthew, you included five women, but they weren't the five women that they expected him to include. They weren't great matriarchs of the Jewish faith. They weren't Sarah. They weren't Rebecca. They weren't Rachel or Leah. No. Four of the five women included, except Mary being the outlier, are Gentiles. Four of the women are Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was a Hittite. This is really cool, and this is an important really important picture to grasp and we can't miss it because we can see that God always intended to redeem people of all races. And God would redeem anyone that would submit themselves to him. Now let's just, we don't have an all the time to look at every person, but let's just quickly reflect on a couple of these women, okay? Let's start with Tamar. Now, Tamar, okay, you, you know, if you know the story, she gets a bad reputation of, because of what she did. Now, there's two Tamars, okay? There's the Tamar with Absalom, with David's son, but we're not talking about that one. We're talking about the Tamar in Genesis with Judah, I won't go into the details, um, that's for you to go and read yourself, but re read that story, um, but it, I'll, I'll tell you, 
if Tamar had not done what she did and not had birthed twins, then this genealogy would have been broken. See, Judah, Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar was taken by one of his sons, and he died before he could conceive and have a son. So the custom was that she would marry the brother to have a son and carry the, the line. So, she, so Judah gives her Onan, but he also dies. Well, actually, he dies because if you read the story, he commits some cruel acts, and he did it because he realized if she has no son, then he'll also get uh, the, the bigger blessing and inheritance. So because of that cruelty, um, he dies. Now, Judah is worried that his sons, every time they go near Tamar, are dying, so he doesn't plan on giving um, you know, uh, his youngest son to her. So Tamar has to trick um, Judah into having twins, and so the family line continues. Now this, some people might say, well, that's horrible of Tamar, but I think the uh, opposite is true. I think God, this shows God's faithfulness and his sovereignty through keeping his promise. We read that story and we can bash Tamar and be like, I can't believe she did that. But God was faithful and kept his promise. It didn't depend on them. It depended on God. Now look at Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite who out of love for her mother-in-law abandoned her culture and in Ruth 116, if you read that story, she says, your people shall be my people and your God my God. So God is willing to redeem anyone willing to submit to his lordship, no matter what. Okay? This has been weaved throughout history. Now here's an interesting one. If you look at Bathsheba, look how she's introduced. Okay? It says David had Solomon um, through Uriah's wife. I think, I think personally this is genius of Matthew to introduce her this way. It's, it's like a double-edged sword to the Jew reading this. See, to, to them, the reader, it's not only another woman mentioned that's probably in, uh, frustrating to them, but it also reminds them of David's sin and what he did. His adultery and his murder. You see, David was a flawed man. And yet, this shows that God was faithful and sovereign. I think it's amazing that these stories are in here because if you miss it, this shows that even man was not in control. God's promises did not depend on man. They couldn't derail God's plan. Man could not do that. And I think that's one of the points is, is showing that God is faithful and sovereign to keep his plan because it's him, it's his word, and he will accomplish it. And the list goes on and on. 
I mean, simply read the Old Testament, and as you do, I want you to think about your life. Who are the people in your family tree, and how you got here? See, for me, every time I look back at mine, honestly, I, it, I'm blown away by God's faithfulness. It, and it's only by God's goodness and His purpose for my life that I am standing before you and able to preach. This, this is not something I could have fathomed, I could have ever designed for my life. And it's way, way beyond any goodness I was able to give myself. And just to give you a brief synopsis of how I'm standing here, you know, I had a cousin captured by Saddam. He survived an execution. Okay? And then he gets help from the U.S. Embassy and gets asylum. And then to my dad driving them to the border to say goodbye, and without hesitation on the spot, my dad saying, I'll take that spot, I'll take that empty spot and come to America. And he was leaving, and he came to America. And then me coming here a year later, I mean, how is this even possible if it wasn't for God? Honestly. I could go into great detail. I mean, we don't have time. And, and I'm, every time I think back on it, I'm just blown away. There are so many facets of my personal life that if God had no hand involved in it, I would not be here. And the beauty of it is, is God was at work way before I even knew he was at work and knew who he was. It was only after I knew him that I looked back and I'm like, oh, that was you. Oh, that was you. Oh, you did that. Oh, you orchestrated that. Oh, you carried me through those dark nights. Oh, that was you. Thank you, Lord. That's the beauty. Now, guys, I understand that the past might not be clear, to some of us. It might be hard to look back and see how God has worked. But I can guarantee you that God is writing the stories and your stories, our stories, as we speak. Now, if you, I'm sure if you ask David or Tamar or any of these people listed in Jesus' genealogy, during their lives, it might have been hard for them to see how God was working everything out. You know? And it might be that way for us. But the hope of Jesus shines through in Matthew's genealogy because what unifies us, what unifies us, all is Him. Jesus' genealogy included messy people because he came to redeem us and them. We are, all, we are all messy. 
All of us, every single one of us in here is messy. But thankfully, that is who Jesus is a friend of, if you ask him. Jesus is a friend of messy people. Now, the question to you is, is what's your story? And we all have them. We all have stories. We all have how God has worked in our lives or is working. And I encourage you all to really reflect on your past or your current situation, as hard as it may be. I encourage you this Advent season to slow down and take the time to talk with others about their lives and help them draw out the goodness of God in everyone's life. It's by His mercy that we are all here. If it wasn't for God, like I said, none of us would be here. He gives us mercies every day to seek Him and to find Him. Share with people boldly the the good news of our Savior's birth. This is the greatest time to do it. I mean, think about it. This time of year, the holiday season, tends to be the loneliest time for people. Why do you think people get so lonely when the holiday season? Some people dread it. Like they hit depression and the the suicide rate goes up. Unfathomable things happen and people hit their lowest during the holiday season, during this time of year. Now, I personally believe, I think this is by design. And I think it's because we as people are image bearers, every single one of us. And if you, if you look at Romans 1, Paul clearly shows that we are all um, imprinted with the quality of God, of, of knowing that there is a Savior, but we just suppress that truth. But as image bearers, we have a soul that is longing for a deeper relationship. We thirst for a longing to know our makers, to, to know our maker, sorry. And we as humans will try everything to solve it on our own. I mean, just look at our world. Okay, look at, look at what we are bombarded with during this, this time of year. And, and everything that the world tries to do to solve your loneliness. What is it, shopping? We're bombarded with sales and to go out there and shop and get the latest car. Oh, it's the greatest gift. Give somebody the biggest gift than last year. Give them a brand new car. Give them a house. Give them the biggest Christmas tree. Oh, no, how about give them a destination trip? Take them on a cruise. Fly, fly to Europe or fly to Florida and be hot during Christmas. Or football games. How about just sit home and watch football games? That'll make everybody happy. Or what if it's alcohol and drugs? 
What if it's partying? What if it's the new fad? What if it's binge drinking? Those won't solve the longing of our souls. Only God, only God can. And I, and I think and I believe as Christians, this is the greatest gift we can give somebody this time of year. That's to tell them about our Savior's birth. To tell them about God's faithfulness and how He's kept His promises in your life and how He's sustaining you. If we, if we all slow down and to honestly think about it, we couldn't get through this season without Him. We couldn't. If maybe it's just my family, but I have a messy family. Not only is it messy, but I also have a side that doesn't know Christ. So I see the messiness and I see the loneliness, the desperation that they're trying to fill with all kinds of things. And then they just, it's a never ending cycle. So again, I encourage you to slow down, to really slow down and look at people and cherish the people that come before you during the season. Don't fall for the temptation of rushing in this season. Don't miss the marvelous event of our Savior's birth and what that means for all of us, what it means for mankind. Share your story. Take the time to sit down with somebody and spend an hour with them. Sit down with your messy family. And in that messiness, share that story. Share how God has been faithful in your life and how He's kept your promise. And again, point them to the reminder that Jesus' birth and why He came was to redeem messy people. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your infinite goodness. Thank you that you are goodness, that you are merciful, you are holy, you are just, you are love. Father, thank you that what you're doing in our lives and how you're sustaining us is beyond even our comprehension. It's beyond, it's beyond any work that we can do for ourselves. It's greater than any good we can bestow on ourselves or others. Father, thank you for your mercies every day during this season. Thank you for the way you've ingrained in us a longing to know you. Father, thank you for that even before we were born, Father, you had a plan to redeem us. That you had a plan that you would come down and go through what we would go through so that you wouldn't be a God that wouldn't be able to sympathize with us. You have compassion on us. 
you came down and took the lowest form and you took on the role of a servant and you accomplished what we couldn't do so that we could be reconciled back to you so that we would have this relationship with you so that we would know what it means to be loved so that we would know what it means to not be lonely and to always have relationship with you that nothing can sever, nothing can break. And Father, thank you for sending Jesus to do that. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in our place and reconciling us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for working out that redemption in our lives and continuing to, to, to sanctify us to look more like Jesus. Please give us more strength to go and share that good news with others. Give us the boldness to do that. Give us humility to do that. Humble us and let us exalt you. And we love you and we pray all of this in your name, Jesus.